Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, will be the leading text that I will be looking at this morning. We started a series uh, just last Sunday, thinking about God's moral law and His governance over the affairs of men, and how He uh, entrusts to humans the responsibility to carry out His his will and moral law in the world. And uh, we are considering now uh, different spheres of authority uh, that do exist between government and religious entities that God has invested with a kind of authority, a spiritual authority. And so we want to consider that this morning. And maybe you have heard the term before, a high wall of separation between church and state. Have you ever heard of that expression, uh, this high wall? Um, those words, some might say, oh, those, those are in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but actually, those are not in the Bill of Rights, and Jefferson wrote those words. Uh, Jefferson, uh, in 1802, was responding to a a Baptist association not far from here in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, he was responding to a letter seeking clarification on his stance on, on uh, religious liberty. And he wrote these words back to them. And he said, that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, they thus were building a wall of separation between church and state. And so what you hear there is his interpretation of what the framers of the Bill of Rights put into place. And this phrase, actually, this wall of separation was pretty obscure, actually, uh, for most of the founding era and also in past the Civil War. And it wasn't actually until 1947 that Judge Hugo Black ruled that uh, there was going to be a separation between the education system and also uh, religious entities. And in his opinion, he said that the wall must be high and impregnable. And so that's where this judicial opinion came from, and that's where we get this concept in our minds. And there's been a raging debate over the last 70 years as to how high this wall of separation exists between church and state. And uh, culturally, we see a shifting of viewpoint even to uh, perhaps what we'd call an extreme position in which the Bill of Rights is now being interpreted as something that is simply an individual right, but it doesn't necessarily apply to people who want to associate together and organize and communicate in the public square. So there may be conflicts at times between uh, sexual ethic in our society and there needs to be a separation and people of religious persuasion are not to participate and organize in a way that interferes in the public square to keep that high wall of separation. That's an interpretation. I don't espouse that. I don't think that's the correct interpretation. I don't want you to get the wrong opinion uh, as I start this message, but 
it does bring to our awareness that there is conflict on this issue in our society. And, and it would be important for us to understand, well, what does the Bible say about some of these issues that we deal with in our world? And um, God is sovereign ruler over his universe. And we sang about that this morning, didn't we? We behold our God who is seated on his throne. And he is the king, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Wouldn't it be good for us to ask his opinion on these matters and not just succumb ourselves to the viewpoints of our society? And yes, we already in some ways know what God thinks. We, we heard last Sunday how Jesus standing in front of Pilate said these famous words, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. And so it's important for us to see this. But did you catch what Jesus said? He said, it's been given to you. In other words, it's delegated from God. And there is a legitimate governmental authority that does exist that has been given by God. And it's intended to execute God's moral laws in the world. Sometimes civil governments will disagree with God's moral law, but God's moral law is higher than what man would want to or not want to execute. And so we have to keep that in mind. And we've got to ask ourselves, what would we do if public policy in the United States said, you know, it becomes prohibitive for the church to organize for its purposes? Purposes such as to carry out the Great Commission. We are called by God and given authority from the resurrected Christ to go into all nations and declare the gospel. That authority was given to Jesus Christ and he's given it to the church. What if our society thinks that that's not helpful for the governance of America? How are we going to process that if we can't organize ourselves well, you might have the freedom to worship your own private faith, but you may not be free to organize and express it in public. How are we going to handle that? And we do need to navigate different spheres of authority and understand what the scriptures say about this. Is there a high wall of separation? What roles do Christians have, have in these spheres? So, Big idea this morning. That's a setup. Big idea this morning is this. God's people need to make wise decisions concerning um, that we, considering that we live under two spheres of authority, spiritual and civil. I asked you to turn to Matthew 22, and I want us to look there and see a very famous discussion that took place between Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians who are on looking. In verse, verse 15, we read these words. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. 
is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. And in this passage, we see some biblical teaching on sphere of authority. Sphere of authority. But do we know what authority is? Authority is power. It's the right to give orders. It's the, the right to make decisions that impact others and also to enforce the obedience, obedience to those orders and commands. There is no government without authority. And there is no, there is no government that has not come about by mutual consent or by divine decree or by subjugation. Authority comes into our world, and it tells us that we need to go in a certain direction, and there is right there. Where did it all come from, this thing that we live with called the government, whether we, we like it or not? It's, it's part of our life. Where does it come from? Well, in the very beginning, God's moral law was completely disregarded. You think back to the very beginning, and you think of the Garden of Eden, and you think of what happened in the first family. There was murder that took place, and there was subsequent violence that started to develop in the whole region in which Eden was, was uh, established. And in Genesis chapter 6, there's a remarkable statement before the command to get on the ark. Everything was going terribly and there's this remarkable statement in Genesis chapter 6 that, that mankind was evil continually and he was following the thoughts and intentions of his own heart. He was his own authority and since there was a multiplicity of people, a multitude of people, there was all kinds of standards of right and wrong and it was chaos. There was no declaration of what God ordains. And so, after the flood, when Moses, or excuse me, when Noah comes off the ark, God declares his moral law. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so, we see from this that that God, when He proclaims His moral law, He has now also given to humans the responsibility of executing and enforcing obedience to His law. Now, why didn't we read more laws? Why did we only read about the, the biggest of laws, the taking of human life? Well, the way the Scriptures unfold, it's it's, it's implicit. What is, the, what is the greatest 
form of abuse of humanity. It is the taking of life. It is the, the highest rung, if you will, on God's moral law. And man is, in, is invested with the responsibility to execute punishments based upon the highest, so therefore he is also entrusted with those which may be considered lower. And so this is where government began in its origins, and human government was created to safeguard God's moral laws. How does this relate to Matthew 22? It relates in this way. Because Jesus in his wisdom is expressing that different realms of authority, that there's different realms that do have authority. And he showcased in this exchange with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and Jesus was here asked to, to arbitrate a dispute. You see, the Roman Empire had come into Israel and subjugated by force government upon them. Now, we as Americans can identify with that thought of being subjugated by force, and we don't take that very well. We don't like that thought. No one likes that thought. But within Israel, there was a group called the Herodians who had kind of made their peace and in their own way of thinking, considered it just their moral responsibility to go about life and follow the new governance. The Pharisees, though, were a lot like, I would say, more American in their orientation because they were resistant to the taxation. They despised the taxation. And here they are setting Jesus up with a potential political trap. And yet Jesus... Uh, in this famous test of allegiance, demonstrate that, that where, where was the highest allegiance supposed to be played out? And in this, he acknowledges dual authorities. And I think it's very fascinating that he doesn't directly talk about the church although we often make the application that this refers to the church. And in this case, it's important for us to see that Jesus is talking to outsiders. He's talking to people outside of his immediate followers. In other discussions, Jesus has privately been telling the disciples that they're going to be a part of a new institution called the church. And here, Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, is not per se talking about the church. I'm going to come back to that. But Jesus is asserting the authority of God to lay claim here to our personal allegiance to Him. This is what He's asserting ultimately. He's saying, yes, you have responsibilities to your civil governments, but you have a higher allegiance to your spiritual governance. And I believe I'm, I'm on the mark here because historically Baptists have taken this teaching to mean the absolute liberty of conscience. Absolute liberty of conscience under Christ and Christ alone. Baptists at one time could lay claim to this teaching as being a distinctive of their denomination. 
But by now, almost every Protestant denomination holds this truth to be so, that we have individual soul liberty, we have direct accountability to God Himself. And it's important for us to recognize this. But there was a time, historically, where Baptists had to go to, to great lengths to persevere through persecution in order to hold on to this truth. According to John Locke, even a hundred years before America's founding, Baptists were the first and only propounders of absolute liberty, just and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty. John Locke was referring to someone that maybe some of us might be aware of as being the founder of Rhode Island, John, or excuse me, Roger Williams, who was a Baptist. Roger Williams uh, was really the first person in our modern era who asserted the doctrine of the liberty of conscience in religion. And again, traditionally, traditionally this jurisdiction um, has been left to Baptists for discussion. But again, I said this is a traditional Baptist view, and I would subscribe to this view. I believe in this view. However, I would say that in its extreme, it cannot be at times healthy. And I say for this reason, because it tends, if in its extreme, it can diminish the authority of a local congregation. In our thinking about how we relate not only to governance of civil magistrates, but also spiritual authority in our lives. As members of Christ, we are not so independent that we are not interdependent with other Christians. We need the gifts of the body to shepherd us, and we need at times to be submissive to the governing authorities that God places within our life, not abusive authorities, but governing authorities that try to direct us into spiritual warfare and to care for our souls. So important. Jesus began to instruct privately with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and said, there is authority that I am going to place within you. You will have the keys and you will have the power to bring people into the church, to excommunicate people from the church, that's a lot of power and authority. But that was given like government was given, the church was given by God, and so we exist with authority in two different realms. I'm going to say a little bit more and just a little bit about our spiritual, the spiritual authority of the church and just how important it is for us to get this clear in our thinking. But for starters, I want to refer to Wayne Grudem, who defines church authority this way, he says that the power of the church is God's given authority to carry on spiritual warfare, to proclaim the gospel, and to exercise church discipline. This is the authority that's been given to the church. Now, let me come back again to think about these two different spheres of authority. Let me just summarize it this way. Within God's moral law, you have God's supervision, His rulership of the whole world. He invests the state with the ability, the authority to enforce His divine laws. 
whereas he gives to the church the authority to promote the true worship of God to, to, as we considered last Sunday, to teach people to love God and to love their neighbor and to carry out the moral laws that he has put into this universe. And we can't do that without the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to be able to do that. And so there's, there's somewhat complementary aspects to these two authorities that we live with. And so this brings me to this reality that realms at times can overlap. They can overlap. Let's go over to Romans chapter 13, please. We're going to leave Matthew now and go over to Romans chapter 13. And we want to see Paul teaching about our responsibility to be supportive of God's moral governance of the world and also to be supportive of governance where it intersects with God's moral governance. In Romans 13, I hope you found it, verses 1 through 7, we read these words. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is, go, is owed. And see, in this text, God invests human government with authority to enforce with punishment and reward according to his moral law. And we see in these verses these general principles, like in verse 1, we see that, again, these authorities have been delegated by God himself. In verse 2, if we resist that dele delegated authority, it, we can incur judgment. Government does wield real power. They do have that authority, and they have real power in verse 3. Verses 4 and 5, there is the discussion about like the avenging of God's moral laws that he has set up, and it's a part of his rulership over the world. And yet, it's also important for us to see that government is owed obedience, honor, and our financial support. That's not something that we enjoy to hear as people. I mean, I don't like paying my taxes any more than anyone else likes paying taxes. And it's important for us to recognize our human responsibility to be supportive of those areas which God has given authority over us as people. But I want to focus on verse 5 for a minute 
And actually, this is really the main focus that I want to focus on here in this text. Um, it says in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Conscience. That's remarkable that Paul would bring up the thought about conscience here. Because the conscience has the ability to be trampled. And it is vulnerable to abuse by even our own actions. I think it's really important because when we consider soul liberty back in Matthew 22 and understanding our conscience having freedom before the Lord, we have to be so careful in how we exercise our lives that we're not distorting the conscience that God has given to us. It's a safety net for us. It's like an early warning system that kind of goes off in your head that says, I don't know if I should do this. It's not Jiminy Cricket, okay? And sometimes people will confuse the conscience with the Holy Spirit. That's not, even unbelievers have a conscience. But what, what works with our conscience is information. Information informs the conscience and we can become overly sensitive when it's not necessary. Or we can, on the other hand, we can dull our consciences and, and when we really need to be instructed and follow Scripture. Conscience is a part of our human nature and it resonates with God's moral laws. I mean, we don't, you don't have to tell a child that stealing is wrong, right? Like they, I mean, even our animals know when they've done wrong, right? The tail goes down between the legs and it's a part of our our makeup, this awareness of right and wrong. And governmental authority is interested in maintaining God's moral, moral laws. And so it would be very foolish of us to, to, to trample our conscience and reject the authorities that God has placed in our life for a purpose. Now, this is relevant to the overlapping of authority and the power of the church as the God-given instrument to carry on spiritual warfare. Because the church does have power, does not, excuse me, I better not say this. <laughs> if the church, the church doesn't have the power to enforce the commands, they don't, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't have a trial here in our church and then go out and hang someone off the bank. That's not our place, that's not our role. But what we do is we engage in spiritual warfare that instructs the consciences of people so that they are motivated to obey God's moral laws. And there is an overlapping interest. And the acts of our civil government are always on a spectrum, always either directly connected to God's moral law or somehow indirectly connected to it. Now, I know Romans 13 appears to have like this, this lock around it in a box, and there are some people who will take this and interpret it, I believe, amiss, 
And it has at times been used to speak for the unlimited submission and non-resistance of higher powers. I don't believe that this is what it's communicating, but we have to be careful. We have to be so careful that we are not trampling our conscience and making it dull to those authorities which have legitimate exercise and authority and responsibility over us. I'm going to talk about that more in a future message and deal with it a little bit more directly because obviously our country came into being because we resisted the higher authority, didn't we? And so we have to think about that a little bit and consider God's moral law. And I'm going to do that a little bit later. But for now, God's moral law, as revealed in Scripture, should direct our conscience first. Not just because government has told us something, but we should be motivated from the heart because we love God first. And it's so important. Now, we've looked at realms that are divided, different responsibilities, enforcement, spiritual worship. We've also looked at how sometimes they can overlap. We have common interests. But realms also can be in conflict. So we really need to recognize this truth. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we have the very first moment in the new church's existence where their goals of spiritual warfare, proclamation of the gospel, was in conflict with the civil authorities. And in verse 19 and 20, we read this. And speaking to the civil authorities in their life, they said, Peter and John answered them and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And in this text, what we're seeing is a resistance to commands not to proclaim the gospel or speak about Jesus or to go out into a public area and draw a crowd. The civil authorities did not want this dispute going on underneath their, their jurisdiction. But the apostles were engaged in spiritual warfare. And that means then that realms at times can be in conflict because spiritual forces are operating above the surface of what we see around us. Governments can be influenced by darkness just as much as they can be influenced by that which is good. And we have to recognize this truth. And we need to be careful that we're not naive. Um, God's moral law is proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are sinners on a slide towards death. And if we don't have any source of salvation, that's where we're going. We're going into a Christless eternity in hell. But the gospel communicates God's solution and his dealing with the justice and giving us salvation in spite of what we deserve. 
That is spiritual warfare that we're communicating as we proclaim the gospel. I'm just going to give you two verses, uh, two scriptures where Paul recognizes this spiritual warfare that we have as believers. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, I have it up on the wall here. It says, For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds. To destroy. That's, that's significant power and authority that's given to us as Christians. I want to give you one more. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 11. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Our weapons are not, they're not, they're not the Second Amendment type of weapons, although those are free in our society. But we, we, we have different kinds of weapons that, that engage on a spiritual level. And these are for our use so that the progress of the church may not be hindered. We have been given things like prayer. We have been given the corporate worship and assembly of believers. You know there is a spiritual warfare every single Sunday to see whether or not you'll be here with us. There is a spiritual warfare in place. And every single one of us are a part of that. And we have been given uh, the preaching of the word, the declaration of the word. These are, are things that press back the darkness. And when light is put out, there is always going to be conflict. And I think it's so important that Christians be not naive. We can be naive. We're engaged in a spiritual war, and Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan also knows how to quote Scripture. Just because you hear someone in governing authorities quoting Scripture doesn't mean that they're quoting it correctly. Be careful. Don't be naive. There is a lion that is roaring and prowling around, seeking whom he can devour. And because we're involved in spiritual warfare, we should expect at times that the church will be out of step with the civil authorities. And here in Acts chapter 4, we have that first instance in which there was out of step. And what did they, they do? They responded with, we have a different authority and realm by which we are accountable and we have to honor God and his kingdom first the apostles were engaged in spiritual warfare and you know what satan was using the civil authorities to try to subvert the progress of the church they were wanting them to abandon prayer they were wanting them to forsake public assembly. They were wanting them to be fearful, to abandon public preaching and the scriptures being read in public. In our day, Satan's tactics are different, but his goal is still the same. He asks himself, how can I disrupt, how can I disrupt the 
the progress of the church? By what means can I draw people away? He may use seemingly innocent rulers to put pressure upon the church to prevent us from public worship. If he cannot overtly persecute us, he at least can plant irrational fears within us. Another form of conflict with government occurs when God's moral law is not upheld. You know, we're specifically commanded in Scripture to pray for kings. All who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. That is an act, that spiritual warfare that we can engage in to preserve the liberties that we enjoy. But these liberties are not just merely for our personal enjoyment so that I can just show up for church. No, we're engaged in spiritual war. We're, we're calling out people from darkness and trying to call them into the light. This is the war with which we engage. And we need to use whatever means. We need to talk to our governing authorities and communicate to them God's moral law and say, this legislation that you have enacted subverts what God intends. We need to be about that as believers. I think of even things that our governing authorities have done years ago that have disrupted and destroyed God's moral law. Policy that even encourages people to stay unmarried. You know, back in the 1970s, there was a real push to end poverty, which, you know, is a concern of God. We don't want people to be in poverty. But in the policies that were implemented, it actually encouraged people to not marry and honor God's moral law and make decisions based on their bottom line. It encouraged people to, to, to um, have children out of wedlock because their benefits were better and not, not marry. These are all things that run contrary to God's moral laws. These all have effects upon our society. And so there can be conflicts within our world, and we need to be not naive Christians. We need to be wise as serpents, yet harmless as doves. Now, I want to give a biblical application to our historical context just in brief. Here in America, we're not perfect by no means. But yet, what sets America apart from every other nation is our historical commitment to the freedom of religion. Throughout world history, state-enforced religions have been the norm. Even today, in Muslim-majority nations, there is not freedom of religion. There's not freedom to express oneself before God. It's unique what has happened. You know, when our nation was founded, 75% of our population were either Catholic, excuse me, 75% of our population were Reformed Protestant denominations. 75%. Now, the other 25 were likely Catholic or Quaker assemblies of some sort. 
But 98% of everyone who lived in the colonies during those founding years went and gathered with their church. 98%. That is significant. Very significant. And so if that's the context, why was it that the Danbury Baptists wrote to Thomas Jefferson back so many years ago? Well, in the state of Connecticut, as a minority Protestant faith, they were not in the majority. Congregationalism was the majority Protestant faith in Connecticut. They, as Baptists, were granted favor of freedom, but they were concerned that it wasn't described as an inalienable right, as something that, that was reserved prior to any governance by man. And that's a just concern. And they were deeply concerned that those who would seek after power and gain under the pretense of government and religion should reproach their fellow man. Sinful governments, sinful people do use government to abridge God's moral laws. And we not need to be aware of this. Now, Jefferson wrote back, and he wasn't wrong, there should be a division between these fears of responsibility and realms. But the wall was never intended to be so high that they couldn't talk to our governing authorities and to communicate in society. Did you ever wonder why here in the state of Pennsylvania we were kind of left alone by the governor? Did you ever wonder about that? Why was it that the, the church, was, like, there was no real guidance given for the church? Well, unlike Connecticut, unlike Connecticut or other states, the framers of the PA Constitution in 1776 took steps to prevent this sort of thing from happening. This is what was embedded in our Constitution. No human authority can, in any case whatever, control or interfere with the rights of conscience, and no preference shall ever be given by law to any religious establishments or modes of worship. That's pretty strong. We have been blessed, and we should give thanks to God for the freedom that we have enjoyed even over this last year. But that doesn't mean that we're not exempt from spiritual warfare. Satan is still active. And some of us are indeed prone to guilt, some of us are prone to fear, and some of us are prone to anxiety. And the government can produce propaganda to influence us in areas where we're weakest. We make free will decisions, and sometimes we need to make decisions that are contrary to some of the things that we're hearing because they're not being spoken in the proper realm of authority. We should not be looking for conflict where it's not necessary, but our role is to support the governance of our civil authorities as best we can. We are, as Christians, filled with the Spirit, and we need to take care that we are engaging in genuine spiritual warfare and not making up things where it doesn't need to be. But we also need to remember that we're citizens of two different kingdoms. And our personal allegiance must first be to who? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his gospel of grace through faith that brings us out of darkness and into light. He is the sovereign one who is good for his people. He deserves all glory. But we need to be careful as we think about this whole topic. We need to make wise decisions considering that we do live under two different spheres of authority, spiritual and civil. All right, let's pray.